This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? It is Welcome to episode 28, and I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be, and thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Now, it's amazing that we're into episode 28 in this whole podcasting journey, and I just can't believe how fast time is flying by, and if you look at it, look at college football. We're almost a quarter of the way done with the college football season as we're heading into week four, and so what better opportunity? to continue talking about college football, football in general, sports and life than with our guest this episode. And that's former Jacksonville Jaguar tight end George Reister III. And he knows a thing or two about football, obviously, but even more so than that, he knows a thing or two about life. And so I know you'll enjoy hearing his story. And just to remind everybody, I thoroughly enjoy staying connected. So please follow on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. And if you need to find any other information about previous episodes, go to our website, richtakeonsports.com. And again, there you can subscribe in multiple platforms, whichever that you choose. But for now, let's jump into the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. Our guest is George Reister III, played tight end for the mighty Oregon Ducks from 1992 to 2002 and was drafted in the fourth round by the Jacksonville Jaguars, playing six full seasons before moving into sports broadcasting, hosting a sports talk radio show called The Drive in Los Angeles, and also appearing on Fox Sports Live Countdown and Kickoff to Countdown. He's a regular contributor to SaturdayBlitz.com, and he shares his opinions on all all things through his vlog, Unafraid, Reister or Wrong. Now, back in 2016, he wrote a guest column on jschool.com, which is Jason Whitlock's blog post. And of course, Jason Whitlock can be found on Fox Sports with Colin Cowherd on Speak for Yourself. And the title of the column is What Steph Curry Taught Me About Being a Man. And George, in this column, describes how Steph helped him realize the power and masculinity of stability. So I wanted to get a better understanding of why he felt that way and decided to write that column. It was more like stuff I was going through in my life personally at the time. So I had gotten married in 2015, the beginning of 2015, and really realizing like how much that stability of being married, like like positively affected my life. And then looking back on at the point in time that I stopped partying and and going out all night and 
all these things, like how much more productive that you are actually able to be and how much less stress that you put on your body. Like just the, just the fact of having stability, stats and numbers show it, that, that married men live longer, they make more money and all this. But, but when you're young, you think, oh, I don't want the ball and chain dragging me, me down. I'm going to be missing out on this and that. And, and in reality, if you find a good woman, your life should be better after. And it's not necessarily going to be easy because I tell my wife all the time, <laughs> we, uh, we are joking. I talked to my dad, too. I just told him, I was like, I said, us people, we are crazy. Everybody <laughs> keeps signing up to get married and all this. And, but it's difficult. It's weird because it's like having kids, right? Having kids is it is. It costs you money, it costs you freedom, it costs you time, it is invasive into your space, it's messy, it is thankless, it is the worst job ever when you when you look at all the negatives. But then at the same time, it is the most rewarding thing that that you can have. Like the, the sense of pride when you look at your kid and they just come over and just sit with you on the couch. I mean, there's it's priceless. And, and it's the same thing with with having a, a family. And and when you are a man, and you lead your family and you're doing the right things. How many positive things come out of that? Even when bad things happen, you and your wife are there together, like your family's still there together. And you guys are are supporting each other. Like the, these are the things that really, you know, matter the most when you, you know, it's fun. And uh, like it when, when it was 20 years, when I was 20 years old, 25 years old, you know, you think, oh, it's fun to go date all these women and do all these things. But really, like a, a new chick is not going to teach your kids how to read. A new chick is not going to take care of you when you're when you're sick, when your mom is in the hospital. You know, she got she, she got to fly somewhere else and go do something else. You know, now, how did your you and your wife meet? Oh, oh, that's very funny. So, uh, so she's in media somewhat as well. And, um, she was doing a radio show back in the day and I first met her. I don't remember what year it was, but I was playing in a, a celebrity baseball, a softball league out here in California. And I met her in the parking lot. I stopped her and her friend and she kind of reluctantly gave me her number. And we talked a couple times and but we never hung out. Right. And then fast forward at least a year or two later, I read I was on Twitter. I read something that she wrote. She read something I wrote and we were just talking on Twitter, like openly on Twitter, like not like we weren't we, we weren't sliding in people's DMs. And one day I sent her a direct message and I said, oh, I want to ask you a question. You know, she's in real estate, all this stuff. So people ask her a bunch of questions. So she she says she allegedly says that she didn't know. She figured I wanted to ask her a real estate question. But I, I get why she could have thought that because I kept it real professional. And I called her and I um, and when I well, she, she sent me her phone number. So when I put it in my phone, a name came up. It came up Danielle Valley. I was like, what? I was like, why do I have this number in my phone? And turns out it took me like six months to remember where I got that number from. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so we were already in a relationship by the time I figured out where that number came from. Oh my goodness, that is too funny. Yeah, and the rest is history. The rest is history, yes, sir. Well, so speaking of history, 
let's get back to the sports history side and just how you got involved in sports at an early age and your earliest memories. Uh, I actually just saw a picture of my earliest memory. I was playing on a basketball team living in Memphis. I remember we were playing at Hillcrest High School on the weekends. I couldn't have been any older, like five or six. I was just playing basketball and my dad was coaching. And then I remember going to a lot of high school basketball and football games. I remember going to go see Anthony Hardaway when he was in high school. I remember going to go to a lot of Friday night football games with my granddad. And um, those were just really good memories, you know, and, and even as I got older, you know, uh, teenage years, my sisters were playing. So, so much of my family, like life and good times have been surrounding sports, like sports has provided some of the some of the best memories of my life, but also some of the hardest memories of my life, too. But but then at the same time, it's just been very rewarding and afforded me a lot of um, opportunities to not only grow myself, but also to, you know, to be a blessing to other people as well. And so what do you mean by hardest memories in your life? Like, for instance, um, I remember one, one of the one of the turning moments in my life was when uh, I think it was after my redshirt freshman year. We played in the Holiday Bowl against when I was at Oregon. We played in the Holiday Bowl against Texas. And at the end of that season, uh, we were standing out there on the field. Everybody on the whole team is so happy. Fireworks are going off. The We had had a great season and won 10 games. You know, Oregon was on the rise at that point in time. Um, it was the first, I think, 10-win season in Oregon history. That was like the year 2000. But then rewind back just a little bit. The first game of the season we played against Wisconsin at Wisconsin. I got a ball thrown to me. And then I caught it, but then I got it, Joey made a bad toss, <laughs> and I got destroyed. I mean, I got absolutely destroyed, and I got flipped over, landed on my head, all kind of stuff, and I dropped the ball in the end zone. And so, fast forward back to the Holiday Bowl, fireworks going off, everybody excited because we came back and beat Texas. It was great, and I was on the field. I was on the field crying my eyes out, and I was the saddest person in the whole stadium because. I didn't catch one ball that whole season. They didn't throw enough. I played a lot now and they didn't throw another ball to me that whole entire season. And I said, this will never in life happen again to me because I was like, how would anybody know I played? I'm not in the stat sheet. They don't count blocks. I was like, they, I was like, they don't, they don't, they don't count routes to get other people open. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I promised myself that that would never happen again. And then another time was kind of toward the end of my career when um, me and Jack Dario kind of weren't seeing eye to eye. And when it became such a business, I've been hurt a couple times. That was just that was just hard, you know, and then being out of the game and all that. So while sports raises you up and gives you all these opportunities when your transition kind of out of the game is one of the toughest that you can possibly have because it's literally like it's like if you go home to your house today right and the door is locked and then you're like wait no 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 i need to go back in there i left some stuff in there there's some stuff i still need to get 
And then they're like, oh, wait, hold on. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out the window. And you're like, no, 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 no. I, I mean, it's hot outside. I want to like sit inside in the air conditioner for a minute. They're like, no, 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 you can't come in here. So you go knock on another door and they're like, no, you can't come in here. So no, you actually just have to stay and stand outside in either the burning hot or the freezing cold and then figure it out, figure out how to build your own new house because you can't go in these houses anymore. How hard was that? I mean, did you have a period of time where you were depressed? Oh, yeah. And the, the craziest part about it is I didn't even know I was depressed because when you're an athlete, you're the master of your body. You can run fast, jump high. You're young. You're you're strong. You you think you're you can do hard things. You can play out in, in zero degree weather. You can play in 100 degree weather with pads on and all these. So you think that you're mentally strong and you're mentally tough. And yes, you are, but you don't have the the tools in your toolbox to deal with uh, like the coping skills and the um, and how to deal with loss and how to deal with, you know, things that sometimes get skipped over and passed over because you are such a good athlete and stuff that just normal people struggle with in general. So I was depressed. I wasn't motivated to get out and do anything. I didn't know how to. I mean, like just simple things like making a doctor's appointment. I had never made a doctor's appointment before in my life. I had to call my mom and ask her. You have to learn how to. I mean, it's just simple things like learning how to formally email people and how to um, write a resume. And and then you have the humility element of it because you're sitting there and you were making X number of dollars. And there's no job that you're going to walk into fresh out of sports unless you go into broadcasting. That is, I mean, and you walk into and not just go into broadcasting, but you're like a Hall of Fame type player and you walk straight into ESPN or Fox Sports or anything like that. You're not going to be making the same kind of money that you were when you were playing. So there's an element of that. Right. And then you're already behind other people in the job market because they've been in the in the workforce for 18 years longer than you have. So there's an element of it that you have to be willing to grind and do the dirty work. And then and a lot of players are because they did it in sports. But when you think and realize that the pride is what's stopping them a lot of times and the depression, because they're like, for me, I was embarrassed. I was like, it's embarrassing to me to go out and do X, Y and Z job or go and kind of start at the bottom and all that. And once I was willing to say, you know what? I don't care. I don't care what people think. I don't care, even though it hurts my pride and all this, I have to not only feed my family, I have to get myself going. So it doesn't matter. You know, I I just have to just suck it up. And I know that the things that I believe and that if I work hard, And if I'm committed, dedicated to what I'm doing, then success will follow. Now, a lot of people struggle with that and they talk about being able to do that, but they're just not able to do that. Um, And it could be that they don't seek out the help. They don't really come to that self-awareness that you just described. And so how did you cross that chasm, so to speak, where you were able to get out of that that vicious rut of being depressed and not being motivated and come to that realization that I don't need to be ashamed anymore and I've got to go out and work. Um, It was three probably very big events that happened in my life. My my sisters and my dad and mom sat me down. It was when we were owning owning the 
cupcake shop we hadn't owned it for too long they sat me down and they were like george i don't know what's going on with you but you're not motivated you're not this you're not like that and i was just like what what and so that was the first thing was kind of like an intervention almost and then the second thing was I, i i feel like this man was like an angel in my life was um this guy named andre collins so he works at the nfl players association and so he flew me down to the former players convention and I was sitting in a room and the, and um, the NFL has developed new programs called the trust and there's all type of parts in there. But the development of that came from other programs and they hired this company called IDEO, which is like a think tank company. And so he sat me down in a room with them and they were asking about what players need, what players want. And I was in there with another player. And we just got to talking. And I was not a player, a person who shared my feelings, all this stuff. I thought everything was fine. And when we got in there talking, like that was the first time I had ever really like emoted and shared all the the stuff that was on my heart and that I was thinking. And I felt so much better when I left. I was like, oh, my God, like I didn't even know. And so that started me being able to talk about it and be open about some of the struggles that I was having, because I was at that point in time, I still had money saved, but I had it in this annuity that didn't start paying out for a couple of years. So I was essentially like broke and had money at the same time. It was like, it's like the weirdest thing ever. Like I, like like I looked at my retirement statements and it had two commas, but my, but my bank account didn't have one comma. So it was like the oddest thing ever. Then I started dating my wife and she was the one who got me to go to, to uh, therapy and really continue to work on myself and kind of delve into these things and dive into them even more. And then talking about it, sharing and because she's all about sharing and talking. And I didn't realize the positivity in that in as men, because a lot of times we shut down and we don't take care of each other because I get that we don't deal with things the same way that women do, but we have to share and take care of each other and let each other know, you know, that you're not weak if something's hard. Like you're not weak if you're hurting. No, you're actually you're actually weak. If you can't talk about these things and share them and really understand how you feel and then process it in a positive way. That's right. We we need our community as well amongst men. Yeah. Yeah. So I so I learned that. And then the um, yeah. So so the third part was my my wife being very instrumental in continuing to help me grow my my self-awareness and my desire to grow and really making it a safe place where we could talk and 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 all that. So that was so those were the three things that really helped me out a lot. And then also getting to and then after that platforms kind of arose for me to go be uh, kind of a messenger to other people about these things. And when they could see how open that I could be about how poorly I felt or how I was depressed and what I did to get out and all these things. Because the lowest point in my life was 2000, you know, 2012 in December. So the same, so everything was going on. It kind of looked good from the outside because we had our cupcake business and all that stuff. And the cupcake business at that point in time was doing well, but we were reinvesting so much of the money to grow the brand. We opened up a second location. So a lot of the profits were going to that. 
so so it was just kind of getting getting by kind of on every day because we had this big plan to to do something even bigger so that christmas i remember i could not afford to buy my kids toys i don't i've never shared this with it with anybody i couldn't afford to buy them toys and i remember sitting at my parents house and my parents kind of and my parents like helped out a lot and they um Made, made sure that the kids were well taken care of. And I was having difficulty with the kids' mom at, at the time. And, you know, that kind of made me feel worse because it was kind of like, oh, you can't do anything for your kid, blah, 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 you know, and all that. And and so as a man, like there's as a man who has always taken care of everybody and taken care of so much stuff like that is. I mean, that can put you in a bad way. So I was, I mean, I can't tell you like how low of a moment that that was for me. And then to see where in two years after that, like how much stuff had changed, you know, because once I got on my feet and got moving, uh, because I went back to school, I, I mean, I tried to just get my hand in everything, trying to figure out where I needed to be, what I was gonna do. And so I just kept throwing, throwing paint up against the wall until it finally stuck. And just to see how quickly in two years, because once you go to getting your life right, what's the first thing that happens? You get attacked because because it's like, no, 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 you're not you're not coming out of this hole. I got you down here. I'm going to kick you while you're down. And so you got to keep trugging and trugging and trugging along. And then finally. Then you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then all of a sudden the, the it caves in and then you, you got to dig through some more tunnel. And once you finally get on the other side, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I can't even tell you like I, I don't even feel like that I am 10 percent of where I'm going because I had the idea like so many other people do is that especially when you play sports, that your best days are behind you. And they're not because, I mean, like this is a job like this is not a career. Playing sports is not a career. It's a job. A job is something that you do for a temporary amount of time. A profession or a career is something you can do 30, 40, 50 years. And once you realize that your best days aren't behind you and then you change your mindset from the one lost mentality that we have, which is, you know, um, the result of a game is I either won or I lost. And so when you look back on your career, even Peyton Manning is going to look back on his career and say, you know what? I didn't win this. I didn't. I lost the Super Bowl twice. I didn't win the Heisman. I didn't win a national championship. All these things. So he's going to look back at the negative things, regardless of the fact that he's one of the three greatest quarterbacks of all time. And once you retrain your mind of, oh, wait, George, I know you didn't get drafted as high as you wanted to, but you were still the 104th picked player in the 2003 draft. And there are 12,000 seniors that come out every single year and you were number and you were drafted number 104. So this is something that nobody can take away from you. You played um, uh, six years in the National Football League. Nobody can take that away from you. The average is 3.2 years. You're well over that. Once I started counting my wins and tallying these wins instead of these losses, the win column is way longer than the loss column. So now speaking of being drafted the NFL, I want to jump back into, again, some of the earlier days. Was that a dream of yours of being drafted in the NFL or did that just come about? 
I knew from the time <laughs> I knew from the time I was a young kid that I was going to be a professional athlete. I did not know what I was going to play, and my body did not support that because I was a little chubby kid. And I remember being in sixth grade in Miss Sugita's class. I was out here in California at the time, and she asked everybody, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I said, "I want to be a professional athlete, and then I want to go be a businessman, and and I want to be in TV." And she said, George, do you know what the chances of being a professional athlete are? I said, yep, they are not good. <laughs> I have never been short on belief in myself, i tell you that much. Um, Obviously not. And, and she said, George, don't you think you need to find another plan? I said, nope. I said, those are the three things I'm going to do, period. And I remember after I got drafted, a couple years later, uh, like a couple seasons in, oh, I got a letter from her. And she and she was like, I apologize because I tried to kill your dream and you didn't listen to me. And you taught me something as a teacher is that, yes, I need to encourage you to value your education and all these things. But I can't be a dream killer. And I want to thank you for that. And so that meant so much to me, because obviously that stuck out in my mind, because I distinctly remembered that conversation that happened. That's incredible. So now how did you end up at Oregon then? Okay, so <laughs> I was pretty highly recruited when I was coming out of high school. So my dream school, I wanted to go to Florida State, but then I realized that was too far. I could have I could have gone there. And when I was really good in school, so like I could have gone Ivy League or Stanford or stuff like that. And so my parents wanted me to go to Stanford, but it's weird because even though I went to this like elite private school out in California before I went to Silmar, I didn't understand what Stanford was. You know what I mean? Like I didn't understand like Stanford is like Harvard, Yale, like they're like that. Right. So and they weren't good at that point in time. And Tyrone Willingham was the coach and all that. So. So anyways, I was going to go to Arizona or UCLA, um, but I knew that Coach Tommy was probably going to get fired at Arizona. So then Arizona was out. So I was going to go to UCLA. And then the coaches from Oregon kept coming up to school. And then they finally got a hold of my parents and they said, you know what? We're going to put his top five schools together. We're, we're going to put a packet together. So they called my parents. They finally got a hold of them. And they were like, did George show you the information? They were like, and they were like, no. So my dad said, George, bring this information home today, or otherwise you're not driving this car. And so the information got home that day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they had my top five schools, all their top recruits at tight end, and what they did not do at that school, <laughs> and what the tight ends did at Oregon. And so that's how they got me on a trip. And they got me on a trip the weekend before signing day. So you know, signing day is always the first. Um, Wednesday in February. So the weekend before I was in Oregon and I went up there and on the way home, I was looking sad. And my mom was like, we're out, we're on the plane. Mom and dad are like, George, what is wrong with you? I was like, I should go to Oregon. Because <laughs> Oregon wasn't good. I mean, like there was, there wasn't that. I went there the year, the year I showed up on campus was the first year we ever changed the uniforms. So it what Oregon like going to going to Oregon now, like you can turn down Alabama to go to Oregon. You can turn down USC to go to Oregon. That was like unheard of at that time. So I was like, oh, man, I should go up there. And then I went and it was such an enjoyable experience. Like it was one of the best decisions I made in my life. And that's definitely one of the places that's on my bucket list to visit for a college football game. I have not been there. So just describe that experience, your first game. 
the the first game I played in was funny because I came out warmed up, all this stuff, and I was exhausted after warm-ups because I had had so much energy. And the crowd there was so ridiculous. Like, I've never in my life been around a crowd that was this passionate and this, like, intense about their team. But not in, like, a negative way like Philadelphia fans are sometimes. But in such a positive, like, we love our Ducks. Like, that was just, I mean, they were loud and they were obnoxiously loud. They were passionate i mean it was uh like there isn't a place like it that i've been to so what was it like scoring your first touchdown oh i remember we were playing at at arizona (laughs) we were playing at arizona joey threw the ball in the back of the end zone i couldn't believe it because so i like tippy toed in the back of the end zone got my feet down i was like oh my god i just caught a touchdown oh 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 my god um it was incredible. I mean, and after my first, my freshman year is when I knew I was going to the NFL. I knew it because I saw some of the guys on my team that had gone to the NFL from my from my freshman year. Some of the guys that made it. I was like, wait, hold on. I do very well against that guy. Oh, this is oh, this is happening now because of that confidence that you had. Did you have any issues of staying motivated and continuing working hard and putting in the effort? Honestly, I have to give a lot of credit to my to my roommates as well, Sammy Parker and Ontario Smith, and mainly Sammy, because Sammy was kind of the motivator guy. He was like, um, when we were living together, Sammy would be like, hey, yo, on Saturdays during the off season, he'd be like, hey, yo, on Saturdays and Sundays, yo, let's go over to the Cavs and go catch some balls. Let's go run some routes. Let's go get some feet. Like, that's and. I, and we were like, man, we got to go up there on Monday. He was like, man, listen, man, ain't, ain't nobody else working right now. And and then so what we devised, we start sneaking and doing extra workouts. And when I and when I say sneaking, I don't mean, I don't mean from the coaching staff. I mean from the other teammates. So we were like, no, we're going to go get this extra work so we can be on top of y'all. <laughs> and some of the other kids, some of the other guys on the team kind of got wind of it and they would start showing up. So then we changed our time and then they would, <laughs> I mean, mind you now, I realized that all those things that we were doing actually made the teams better because, because the other guys were like, hold up, I'm not letting them beat me. So then they started doing extra work. So yeah, so all those things were, were really, really good. And yeah, at no point in time in my Oregon career could I have said that I could have worked a little bit harder. In my professional career, though, there were two off seasons that I felt like I could have worked harder. But part of those were surrounding injuries. So and I didn't really understand how to, you know, rehab and be in shape more and all of that stuff. So, you know, it was it was a growing it was a growing pain, if you will. And so speaking of injuries. What is the life like of an NFL player in terms of being banged up? Is it just every single week you're just completely banged up and you just have to fight through it? Um, it's See, it's weird because each season is different. You know, some seasons you cannot get healthy. Like you are constantly just nicked up and banged up every week. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, will this ever stop? Like, you're like, OK, OK, so now I have turf toe. 
And all right, so I'm starting to get my turf toe better. Oh my God, I have bruised, bruised wit, ribs. Now my toe hurts and I have bruised, bruised ribs. Oh, great. Finally, my, my bruised ribs are starting to heal. This turf toe is starting to feel a little bit better. Oh man, I got a big hematoma on, 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 my, on my arm. <laughs> I mean, it's just like never ending some seasons. And then other years, you'll just have like, uh, you know, I, I got a, you know, I got a little bruise here, but I generally feel good. So there are some seasons that you can't stay healthy. And then there are some other seasons where uh, you feel invincible. Now, and we also talked about earlier on just looking at different talent levels. So when you made the transition from Oregon to the NFL, what was the biggest eye opener for you in terms of the talent level at the NFL? Um, It wasn't so much. I didn't have any difficulty with the talent level for, for me personally. For me, it was this, the same thing that everybody has trouble with is the speed. I mean, this, the speed at which things happen is exponentially increased. I mean, it's not it's, it's not like when you go from high school to college, there's an increase. And that's a big increase, too, mind you. But then when you go from college to the pros, the amount of information that you have to process quickly is incredible. And that's why the whole notion of a dumb jock is it, it doesn't even make sense, especially for football players, because you are every single week. Right. The playbook is different because each team runs a different defense. Each offense runs a different offense. And you are constantly having to relearn and process information each and every week. So the ability to learn and process things is there for everybody. Well, for everybody who makes it, because because you can't, you won't make it. So Jacksonville as an NFL team, how was that in terms of your time there? Because there's a lot of questions. Is Jacksonville a market for an NFL team? And, you know, what's the viability of them actually having an NFL team? What's your experience uh, from a player standpoint and then now looking at it? You don't know what you don't know, right? So I got drafted to Jacksonville. Like the team was good. The Weavers were good owners. You know, like the city was cool. The only thing that was kind of bad was that when we played against like historically uh, old teams, you know, like uh, like the Chicago Bears, Steelers, Cowboys, anything like that, there were more of those fans there than there were Jacksonville fans because these people were originally fans of that team before they became Jacksonville fans. So there wasn't that longstanding history and loyalty to the uh, team, which more people have now because they've been there 20 years. And then when I went up to the Giants, it was just different. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they just like the like the fanfare surrounding the team, how much more the players mean in the city. And I mean, it was just it was just different. And even how the facilities were, the way the ownership kind of took care of the players differently. Not, not, not that the Weavers did a bad job, but it's just different. So do you think it would hurt the NFL if they just dissolved that team or moved it to a different city? Listen, the, the NFL is, they, they managed to walk through the raindrops con- continuously, you know, where other leagues have suffered with moving teams and all that. They don't, they don't care. They will play NFL football on the moon if people will show up. They will they will make it. The only thing that can kill the NFL is is literally them sabotaging themselves. Now, you had also mentioned uh, Jack Del Rio and 
you didn't see eye to eye. So what happened with your relationship with Jack Del Rio that caused some tension there? So Jack was un, under, <clears throat> it was his first head coaching job. He hadn't been coaching for too long comparatively to how long people normally take to get jobs, to get head coaching jobs. And I think that he didn't react well to some of the pressure. And so he, he kind of was different on some days. Like, like there wasn't the consistency like that you need to see out of your head coach in terms of how he dealt with players, how he dealt with the team, you know, like one year we came in and there was ping pong tables there. And then we lose a couple games. He doesn't think the focus is there. So then he rips the ping pong tables out, takes all the people's music out of the locker room. You know, it's just like random stuff like that. Then he, how he would discipline players. It was a little different sometimes depending on uh, how he was feeling that day. And that consistency kind of wore thin on guys. And from my understanding of how he's dealing with players in Oakland, because I still talk to him now because I was very bitter and angry with him when I first left. But since then, we we've talked about some things and I've seen and heard from other players that how he's different in Oakland. So I think that him going to go play with Peyton Manning and being in Denver and being with John Fox and some of those other guys was very beneficial for him. Well, actually, no, he was with Kubiak, I think. So now did you guys reconcile then? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we've and we had a, a positive interaction in this last draft. I text him during the draft and he responded. So, yeah, so he's yeah. So we are we are good now. And, and I'm at a place now where I root for him to succeed because more than anything, it was more than just about me. It was just that I wanted to see. Um, I was happy to see that he learned from his mistakes because I learned from the mistakes that I made. So if so, if I needed forgiveness out in life and all that stuff, then I can offer the man the same thing. Well, and, and forgiveness is very important. And I've, I've been able to do that in my life and learn that lesson as well. So now, you know, you realize that NFL is a business and you've had this entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak, from early on, as you had mentioned. So the next step for you getting into broadcasting and business, what was that like? Well, business was easy because I had owned a clothing store while I was playing in the league. So I'd already had an entrepreneurial spirit. But when it came to getting in broadcasting, now that was a totally different story because from the time I was a kid, I remember when I was living in Memphis, I was going to Doubletree and I stuttered really badly. And that was always a sore spot and a spot of sensitivity for me because I was made fun of so much from the time I was young. I mean, like even when I was a really good athlete, people still made fun of me. I got in fights with teammates over them making fun of me, even in the NFL. And but I knew I had all these thoughts, ideas. I wanted to get into TV. I wanted to act. I wanted to talk about sports, all these things. Right. And I used to be so frustrated because I was like, God, why on earth would you put this in my heart? Like you put this desire in my heart like that, that. You know, it's like if somebody feels like they're supposed to do music and, you know, and then if they're if they supposed to do music, but then they don't have ears or something, you know, and I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do it. So, you know, and then a lot of that from being young, you get made fun of people tease you. They're like, oh, spit it out, uh, say something, whatever. So there was stuff that I should have been able to do when I was young in terms of because I was really good in school. I can get, you know, being able to go to Ivy League schools and all that. But people don't think that you're as smart as you really are if you stutter because 
like, oh, it's just something that correlates. Oh, well, you can't get it out. So then you can't be that smart, you know. So my interaction with people was not always very positive. Like I would keep things very surface level with people. And so I didn't really make a whole lot of like true long lasting friendships. Then when it came to even more getting in broadcasting, I didn't think it possible. So like this is something that I spent a lot of time praying about. I was like, God, I need answers because this is not right. Like this is just so ridiculous and and I'm tired of being making fun of, being made fun of. I'm tired of feeling like I'm feeling. And then I started working with some voice coaches. And then when I went to broadcast boot camp where I met Jason Romano at, they had a guy there named Arthur Joseph who works with opera singers and all this stuff. And he taught me so many techniques. And it's probably like some of the, it's very expensive to work with this dude. But I mean, cause he works with Tony Robbins and writes, helps write all the guys Hall of Fame speeches and all this stuff. And I, and he works with Commissioner Goodell and all this. So I spent a lot of money on it, but however, it was the best money I ever spent. Now it's been very productive, very good. And just that not being a source of tension in my life and knowing, oh wow, I can really go do all this stuff if I want to do it. And so what are the next things that's on the horizon for you in terms of broadcasting and podcasts and all of that? Yeah, so right now, so actually I'll give you a little bit of history too. So I've had my own um, radio show afternoon drive here in LA. Um, That was actually my first job, was in LA, three to seven on the radio. I mean, that just doesn't happen, right? Very successful there, transitioned over there to Fox. And then was working on developing some shows, but then that kind of went left when um, Jamie left. And and so I said, you know what? I am going to grow my base, grow my following, and really get these ideas out because we live in 2017. If you have ideas, you have thoughts, you have opinions, you can write them, you can uh, blog them, you can video them, you can live stream them, whatever. So I've taken up all those mediums. I write, <laughs> I I do live stream where I call my show unafraid and I write about college football. I write about sports, write about life. And I'm also uh, starting a podcast called unafraid as well. We'll, we'll be dropping toward the end of September and it'll be out every week. What's the concept for the podcast? Unafraid is just continuing following what you're doing with the unafraid live streaming. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's a combination of, like I'm a three dimensional person. So I'm not just sports. We're not just talking X's and O's. We're talking like I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son. I am a business owner. I love sports. I love food, you know, like politics matters in my life. And I know that there are a lot of people that are like me that don't just care about one topic. You know, they, they don't want to just hear that. You know, some some days, yes, I want to talk about sports, but yes, there's some other stuff going on that, that matters a little bit more to me that day. And so that's how I kind of build the uh, show. I just talk about the things that matter to me that day and the ideas and thoughts surrounding some of the people, ideas and stuff like that in sports. What have you been able to learn from sports that has helped you just in life and in your career? Oh, that the people that work the hardest have the most success. And the only place in the whole world that success comes before work is the dictionary. So has sports been a big impact in your life? Oh, yeah. I mean, it has 
I mean, it, it surrounds pretty much every relationship I have in life almost. <laughs> I mean, just with, I mean, even with my kids, like we like we play sports together. We do stuff together. Like, I mean, not just playing organized sports, but we go play paintball. We we do stuff in the house. We'll we'll, we'll try to toss stuff in a bucket, see who wins. You're you're going to mess your I've resigned myself to believe that I'm going to mess my kid up in some way. Right. He's going to be too much. He's going to be too much of something or not enough of this or not enough of that. Right. So you just want to I don't want to mess up with his character. So like character has to be intact. Right. So so if I mess up with his character, I fail. But in terms of kind of being maybe too competitive or something, you, you know, some area, I'm I'm OK with that. So I want to get his character right 100 percent. And then I want to get. Everything else about 80, 20, where, you know, he's, he's got to figure out the other 20 percent itself. My dad, you know, he made, made me a little too much of this, but it was a good thing. But I got to learn how to balance this out or something, because I love the quote because I collect quotes. And I believe this with every bone in my body is that a man's weaknesses flow from the same well as his strengths. And by that, I mean, is that you look at. Kobe Bryant, right? He's a maniac. He was a maniac about his workouts, a maniac about all this, right? About being the best basketball player that he could. So that's a strength. But at the same time, his strength also kind of led him to alienate people sometimes, not necessarily spend enough time with his family probably and all these things. So from the same well as your strengths, your weaknesses flow out of that same thing. So wherever that you are the strongest, when you flip it over, you you have a weak spot or a sensitivity there as well. That's so true. And I ask every guest I have their words of wisdom. So I don't even have to ask you, George. You just gave it to me right there. <laughs> and so, so I'll wrap it up with one last question. And this is going to go somewhat political and, and within the NFL. I'd just love to get your thoughts because it still is a hot topic. And that's Colin Kaepernick and that he's still not in the league. What's your thoughts and opinions on the protest and just that he's not in the league? Okay, so <clears throat> I'm glad you asked me this. Okay, so let me let, let me give you a tad bit of background the way you understand where I'm coming from. I'm a person who both my grandfathers were in the military. I've been to military bases around the world speaking, you know, donating my time, energy and money to the military, all this. So I, so I speak from a place of there. And we are a country. The United States is a country that was built and founded on protest. The American Revolutionary War against the British was about protest. The Civil War was about protest. Our servicemen and women go over and sacrifice their lives, their family, all that. That way we can have these freedoms. So to be upset when somebody exercises those freedoms and want to ostracize them is it's un-American. <laughs> it, it, it's that. And just the and the protest was never against the military. People love the military. And the protest isn't against police officers because police officers. Here's what I say about police officers. Police officers are good people. They're good people trying to do the right things. However, there are some criminals that do have badges. They aren't police officers. They are not officers of the peace. They are criminals, just like anybody else, just like there are criminals that work at banks. And with Colin Kaepernick, people don't 
there are powers that be that don't like what his protest is about. So when it looks like, oh, that's not a big deal or you should use a different platform to display these things. I mean, really, why? Because if you're an athlete, you have to use your platform to affect change. If you are a politician, if you are whatever, you have to use your platform to affect change for not just yourself, but people in general. Like you have this responsibility. And then there's the idea that he was he's a distraction. His teammates have said, his coach, Chip Kelly, all these people said that he was a model teammate, came in, worked hard, didn't, you know, it's not like he's taking a knee in between plays, went out there, played hard. When you look at his stats, 16 touchdowns, four interceptions last year, uh, high quarterback rating, you know, like these are things that say that he should be in the league playing football. Then there, and, and, and then there are the lies that have continually come out. NFL ratings went down. There's a poll that said the NFL ratings went down and that 27% of people tuned out because of the protests, right? Here is the thing is, is that this is where that poll got cherry picked. That poll was of 9,200 people. And of those 9,200 people, 12% of them said that they watched less NFL football last year. And of that 12%, 27% said it was because of the protest. And then like 23%, 23 percent said it was because of the election. So so when you factor in of the 27 percent of the 12 percent of the 9200, that rounds out to three percent. OK. And, and and here is what the people won't tell you is that in that same poll where the 12 percent of people said that they watched less NFL football, 26 percent of people said they watched more NFL football in that same poll. Like like you didn't have to read any other lines, you'd have to scroll down in the like two columns over in the same box. And then to make it even more ridiculous than that, when you look at so the NFL puts out more content each and every year. So there were a lot of bad games last year. So ratings were down on some of the telecasts, especially during the election. I mean, it, it, it generally does that. But when you have such a polarizing election this time, it definitely affected it. However, overall viewership of NFL went up last year. So these are the things that they don't tell you. There is just a scapegoat and an excuse to continue to blackball Colin Kaepernick with trying trying to find some reason. Oh, he's disrespecting the military. No, he's not because it's not about the military. He he uh, uh, people of color hate the police. No, no, they don't. They just want when when things happen for them to be fairly adjudicated um oh he can't he can't play if you tell a quarterback he'll have a four to one touchdown to interception ratio uh everybody will take that you know he's not a good teammate his teammates say otherwise his coach said otherwise i mean so it, it's a it's a way to keep people in their place in, in terms of because it's bigger than just color and race as well it has to do with the mentality of NFL owners and coaches because they're because they're going off on Josh Rosen right now, too, for some of his comments about things. And same thing. They're questioning Aaron Rodgers. Are you are you really dedicated to this game, son? Is this really like so they want you to be a well-rounded person, allegedly, because they want you to make good decisions, be whole and all this. But then at the same time, on the back end, what they say to you is 
is no, you need your every waking breath and moment and your entire life to be wrapped around this entire game, your entire identity wrapped around this game. So it's bigger than just color and that. That is a huge part of it, but it's also that the teams want control over their players. And so do you think Colin will be back in the NFL? At first, I was cautiously optimistic, but now as days and days go by and we see Buffalo signing Joe Webb, we see uh, Denver signing uh, Brock Osweiler, who is obviously awful. We see, you know, Andrew Luck going down and they're starting Tolzien and all this stuff. Like, I am really doubtful that he will be signed. You know, it's going to take a bold owner, but in reality, being that the truth is the NFL viewership went up. You have to think that whoever signs him, because because mind you, it's now turned into, it's not a black white issue anymore. It's not a black and people, of, I mean, a white and people of color issue. This is, there are so many other people, people who are, there are so many white people, people of color, everybody is on this side about this in terms of that the man should be signed, that whoever signs him is going to see a significant, I believe, see a significant jump in their fan base in terms of merchandise, because mind you, he still has one of the top 20 selling jerseys in the league. So so the idea that people are going to stop showing up in the stands, I mean, it, it's stupid because people don't stop showing up when you sign Greg Hardy. They don't stop showing up when you when 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 your kicker has domestic violence. They don't stop showing up for that. I agree with you, George. It's I, I think it's laughable that the excuses that they come up with, because at the end of the day, I've seen it. You've seen it. History tells us if you win, fans will show up. That's the bottom line. They just want wins. Then my last point about this is that where when people keep saying, oh, stop being he needs to stop bringing politics into sports. First thing is. The owners are bringing politics into sports by by not signing him. And sports are continuously part of politics. I mean, as a country, we boycotted the 1980 Olympics. We almost boycotted the Olympics um, in Berlin. And what, what, what was that, 32, 36? So we almost boycotted those. So like sports has continuously always been somewhat involved in politics as well. Like so, so the idea that it shouldn't be is simply surrounding you don't like the cause. It just again shows you that sports is intertwined in our lives much more than a lot of people really give it credit for. Uh, but George, thank you so much for your time. I know I stole a lot of your time. Again, I, I can't thank you enough for your time, and uh, greatly appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks for thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here, and and um, maybe, maybe we'll do it the other way around sometime soon. One thing for sure is that I know I would thoroughly enjoy the opportunity of spending more time with George, especially on his podcast as he's getting ready to launch that. And you also probably picked up from George that hard work is in his DNA. He's not afraid of hard work and the necessary things that go into that pathway of success, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's what he really is trying to emphasize. And just listen to the quote that he mentioned, the only place that success comes before work is in the dictionary. And I love that because a lot of times we get caught up trying to move too fast and 
not putting in the time and the effort to get to success because it is a journey. It's not necessarily just this one-stop destination. There is this pathway of success. And listen, if you're in the NFL, if you've made it in the NFL, you know all about hard work. Where I think the struggles come is that you also probably heard from George there is that a lot of these athletes, they get to a point where that's their identity. And yes, they're not afraid of hard work. It's just what is the next step for them once they leave the playing field and what does their career look like? And I think they struggle with trying to find that pathway into something that they're passionate about to continue putting in the effort, putting in the hard work. And George definitely mentioned that where he had his struggles, but he was able to finally find that outlet. And it's into sports broadcasting and sharing his thoughts and opinions. And I know he's going to have continued success from that standpoint. Well, let's wrap up this episode with the weekly words of wisdom. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Let's explore the weekly words of wisdom. So this week, our words of wisdom are going to stay in the success theme and just talking about what it takes to be successful and having sustained excellence. So the quote this week comes from Alex Noble, an artist and author, and you've probably seen many of his quotes uh, floating around and he's had several quotes about success, but this week it's talking about the process of success. So his quote is, success is a process, a quality of mind and a way of being, an outgoing affirmation of life. So it rings true that success is not just a quick stop, a quick destination, just something that you get to without putting hard work into it and the mindset of success. And that's very important in that journey of being successful is making sure that you're believing that you're going to be successful. Well, that wraps up episode 28. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 